welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. I'd just like you to know that my sermon was really short last service, so I'm going to talk very slowly this service. Also, um, Abby was feeding her child in the back, and I had finished early, so she had to like sprint out from feeding her baby to come finish the songs. Um, But we are going to start with a little illustration of this thing called life. to cut it um, like that because it was then going to go on to an advertisement for a funeral home. So <laughs> the, the journey through life is, is only predictable in its end, unless Jesus comes back before then. Everything else seems to be up in the air. And we try to make um, really good educated guesses by basing them on all of this accumulated knowledge regarding the rhythms of life. And this information, we then partner with wisdom, and it helps us navigate our way through the ups and downs associated with being humans in a fallen world. These ups and downs are often referred to as life's seasons. So does anyone know what this is? The students might know it because they know of my great love for this. Anybody? What is that? It is a mango tree. I knew it. Thank you, Hope. That's a mango tree, okay? And, and that was my mango tree in Florida. In order to obtain this picture, I had Lalia text our neighbor in Florida to sneak into our backyard and take this picture, which is completely normal, I know. Um, when we sold our house in Melbourne Beach, I was shocked by how much heartache it caused me. I... I knew I was not going to miss the humidity. I was not going to miss those noceums or the mosquitoes or mowing the lawn in 90-degree weather. Um, but I was really going to miss the, the trees that I had planted. It was this really weird heartache that I experienced. I was also going to miss my saltwater pool, which was glorious. I don't claim to have a green thumb, but I would say that I did pretty, pretty good by, by my plants, um, my trees. It turns out that mangoes grow very easily in that area of the world, but nearly every day I would walk outside and I would like 
talk to them. I would look at them. I would marvel at their growth. I would water them, fertilize them when they needed to be fertilized. And I learned a lot about cultivating this delicious fruit. Like the fact that all those little mangoes, this was horrible, but I had to cut off every single one of those little mangoes because this tree was not big enough yet to sustain their growth. And so I had to cut them off and just wait an entire another year in hopes that it would be big enough to um, bear the weight of the mangoes. Um, I also learned that once you do get some fruit, after you harvest them, you have to cut off a lot of the branches, which is called pruning, which any of you who prune things, it's, it's hard to prune things. It's like your little tree babies. I didn't have real babies at this point, so they were my tree babies. But in the right season, for mangoes, this was summertime, you could get, I didn't even know there were 25 different types of mangoes, you could get 25 different varieties of mangoes on one five-mile island right by our house. All you would have to do is drive along the road, pull into people's driveways, and they would be selling mangoes out of their driveways. Um, and we waited for this season with like a lot of anticipation and joy because we are mango people, and Judah and Silas also love mangoes. We give Judah the dried mangoes, and he just slobbers all over them. He's only six months old. So there was this great satisfaction in eating mangoes, right? But I also learned this whole other type of joy and satisfaction with the, the plants that I had to care for. There was pleasure in the actual planting, in the watering, the nurturing, and even in the waiting. But don't get me wrong, nothing compares to the harvesting and the eating. And so we turn to Ecclesiastes 3 this morning. It's on page 554 of your pew Bibles, or you can turn in an app. And this passage begins with the declaration that for everything there is a season. So we're going to begin there. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, as we open up your word, um, we marvel at the way that you speak to us, that you can communicate to us right here, right now. So we pray that you do that by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would align our hearts to um, look more like Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 3, we just sang it. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So this poem deals with a major concern of biblical wisdom. What is fitting or appropriate at a particular time? You must plant at the right time and you must harvest at the right time. There are rhythms in place and it does us humans good if we can sync up with the natural world. So what we have here is a bunch of pairs that are opposites being listed off. And some of them immediately make sense to us, like the fact that 
There's a time to be born and a time to die. As a church family, we experienced that this week when Guido passed away on Tuesday and Logan was born on Wednesday. Others are ones that we don't like, but regardless, they're still true, like the fact that there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And finally, there are some that I think are just lost in translation, like this whole thing about casting away stones and a time to gather stones. So a time to cast away stones would refer back to clearing a field, and a time to gather stones would be actually getting your building materials in order to build. Another one that I think is lost in translation is verse 7, and I think we should spend a little bit of time there. It says that there is a time to tear and a time to sow. According to the Torah, one of the essential elements of mourning is the performance of the kriyach. That is the tearing of the outer garments by mourners. It is designed to arouse within the mourner and all those present the ability to express their grief. And it creates this actual physical representation of an opening so that that person can release his or her feelings. So when it says in verse 7 that there is a time to tear, then it seems to echo what it said in verse 4, which says that there's a time to mourn. But in this pair, there's a different opposite. Now it's not a time to dance. It says, now there's a time to sow. So what could that mean? It means that there are times in life that we need to mend things, when we, meet, we need to heal. The hard part of all of these is determining when to do the former and when we should do the latter. The one I personally have the hardest time with, does anyone want to guess? I'm, I don't know when, to, did someone say it? Speaking in silence, Hans is giggling over there. Yes, I have trouble knowing when to remain silent and when to speak up. I'm hoping that God will use my wife and sanctify me in that way. Um, seriously though, it is hard to know exactly. And it's not just about knowing when to do things. It's actually doing them. Some of you might be wondering right now, this morning, when you might get the opportunity to transition from a season of mourning to a season of healing or dancing. And that's a really good question to be asking. And it has, it's a really hard question for me to answer. But let me offer up this point that I think will help. Ecclesiastes is not saying that silence is better than speaking up or vice versa. These opposite pairings are not trying to place something that is favorable over something that's less favorable. Yes, we would prefer peace to war and dancing to mourning, but that is not what this passage is trying to communicate. It is simply pointing out the reality of life, that there is a time for everything. And I think we all need to hear that wisdom. We all want to be in those seasons associated with rainbows and puppy dogs, but we also know that there are rainstorms that are coming. And in every season, God is there and his purposes will never be thwarted. Just like in the previous two chapters of Ecclesiastes, the author is 
asking, trying to figure out what's the meaning to life? What's the meaning to all of this? But in chapter three, he is wondering about the benefit of labor and toil in a timed world. If our seasons are under the direction of God, then how can we really control or affect anything? Ecclesiastes wants to know if we can really figure out the right time for a particular activity or response. After all, it's kind of our duty to do so. We should know how and when to act. In order to do this, we need to gain wisdom and remember that timing is everything. Take, for instance, baseball, of which I am not a fan, nor am I apt at it at all. I have horrible eyesight and no reflexes, so baseball was not my sport of choice. But to hit a ball coming at you at 90 miles per hour plus, I mean, you have to have perfect timing. So if you are good enough or lucky enough to actually make contact and put the ball in play, then someone in the field has a chance to catch it. Is timing important with the catch too? Yes, it's important, important all around. Let me just show you a quick illustration. Do not blink or you'll miss it. Three, two. Look out, a shot right back at Faria, who ducked, got the glove up there and made the catch. Wow, take a deep breath there. That ball was hit back at him at 110 miles per hour. They clocked it right at his head, and he admitted that he did not mean to catch that ball. He was just trying to get out of the way, and he looked, and there was a ball in his glove. <laughs> but the point remains, timing is important. Timing is important in relationships as well. Many of you might have been in a relationship where the timing wasn't right. Lalia and I went on our first date, and then she broke up with me. And then we went on a second date, and she broke up with me. And that happened about seven or eight times because she was convinced that the timing wasn't right. We were both in grad school, and I was her first real boyfriend. But I, on the other hand, I was convinced that the timing was perfect. It was the first and perhaps last time in our relationship that I was objectively correct. <laughs> Cultivating a life that times things better also takes a lot of practice. Farmers and vintners throughout the centuries have continued to hone their skills regarding the most opportune months to plant certain crops in different areas of the world. Musicians and dancers recognize that they must practice together often in order to make sure that they are in sync with one another. And these are the things that we can actually somewhat control through practice and experience, but we're still left to deal with unforeseen circumstances, like a drought for a farmer or a broken foot for a dancer. And that is why all wisdom regarding time must originate with the belief that God, at the beginning of time, created heaven and earth. God is sovereign all over all time. He's alpha and omega, beginning and the end. It is not our obligation to understand how exactly time works. We simply need to know that all time is God's time. And I have to admit that when I decided to preach this three-week uh, sermon series, I thought for sure, and I'll even say this, I said, oh man, Ecclesiastes 3 is going to be a home run. And 
Then I started reading it. And I'm like, this is a really hard thing to preach on. It was the hardest one of the three weeks. And that is because I realized something. I am not good with seasons. When I am in a good season, I sometimes let dread creep in as I know there is a not so good season looming around the corner. And when that particular season does show up, I rarely have the wherewithal to remember to look for the good in it. Instead, I just waste my time complaining and anxiously waiting for the better season to show up. I saw some nods, so I don't think I'm alone in this. And so I prayed into it, and I kept reading this passage over and over, and every time I read it, um, the Apostle Paul's words kept popping into my mind from Philippians 4, 10 through 13. He starts out by saying, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's this guy who's done so much for the early church, for the kingdom of God, and he's writing this, this letter from prison. And in earlier verses, he almost has this audacity to tell everyone to just rejoice all the time and focus on all the good stuff in life. He doesn't complain. He's not even begging for a new season of life. Paul had learned to accept whatever came his way. And here's the crazy part. Is he, he didn't just accept it. He cherished it all as a gift from God. He had this recognition that his relationship to Christ basically made all of life's seasons irrelevant. He had a great appreciation for life, for the breath in his lungs, but more importantly, he appreciated the grace that Jesus had bestowed upon him. He was able to be content in all situations and circumstances. And even the saying that he was able does a disservice to what Paul is trying to communicate here. In the oft-quoted Philippians 4.13, Paul erases any sense of self-sufficiency. He is able only because Christ is able. Christ is sufficient in all, in all seasons, and a realization of this leads to the contentment that we hunger for. Paul's point is that he has learned to live in either want or plenty through the enabling power of Christ. And this is no easy task. And it requires the Holy Spirit to be at work within us. But God also invites us into partnership with him in that work. This is my best friend in the world. His name is Charles Silas Llewellyn IV, Chase. I've known him since first grade. This was us during our Hanson phase. Those are us. Those are boys, just so you know. That is <laughs> Chase is in the Superman shirt, and I don't know what I'm wearing. But yes, those are. we went to soccer camp, and everyone called us Mbop, if anyone remembers the, Hansen, the famous Hanson song. Okay, enough of that picture. So Chase was the best man at my wedding. I had the privilege of officiating his wedding. Um, we're extremely close. I call him every week. And... About 10 years ago, he was stationed in, uh, for the Marines at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. 
And I convinced him to come run a half marathon with me. And so he came and he ran without any training because he was a Marine, so he could just grit it out. And his left leg started experiencing some numbness as he ran, but he just powered through it and he kept running. And later that night, he had the worst headache that he'd ever experienced, and he went to the hospital. And the doctor immediately sent him home and said, you just ran a a half marathon, you're dehydrated. A few hours later, he said it felt like, this is him saying this, that he had broomsticks being pressed into his eyeballs and horns growing out of his head. So he went back to the hospital for an MRI, and they discovered a plum-sized brain tumor. He ended up getting his first of four brain tumor resections a couple, couple weeks later and placed with the wounded warrior detachment at the naval hospital. So the result of this was him being taken out of the specialty he was trained for, which he absolutely loved. He went through six weeks of chemo and radiation only to find out that he needed his second brain surgery a few months later. He celebrated his good fortune as there was no lingering effects of the surgeries and treatments for the next six years. He was told that he wouldn't need any more MRIs, but that he could in a few months if he just wanted to be extra safe. He was prudent, and he went and got that final MRI. But it showed growth. So he had his third brain surgery. On his follow-up MRI, three months later, it showed very rapid growth. And his fourth brain surgery was done in May of 2017. And this surgery revealed the worst tumor yet, a grade four glioblastoma. During that surgery, the surgeon nicked a spot on his motor strip, and he's experienced numbness in his left hand ever since. That's an annoyance, right? But considering he's had four brain surgeries, that's, that's a pretty good deal. And then he began a um, trial program at Duke University, and he was infused with a modified uh, polio virus right into the tumor. And the polio feeds on the tumor, and at the same time, the immune system then recognizes the virus and attacks that area. And this crazy, awesome trial was working. It's been working like a charm. They say his MRIs now look like Swiss cheese, like there's little holes coming through the tumor. But he had a delayed inflammatory response to the treatment, the result of which was a loss of feeling Um, strength, and use of his left side, his arm and his leg. Along the way, he had this major plastic surgery where a graft was taken from his leg and a part of his skull was actually removed. And that loss of skull was a huge blessing in disguise because, because of the inflammation. If his skull was still there, he'd basically be unconscious from the pressure. And so since this last surgery, he's lost the use of his left arm and feeling in his leg, causing him to have to walk with a cane. He stopped driving, and his his wife has gone on disability, gone off work to, to care for him. And I'll let Chase speak for himself regarding how he has seen God work in all of these events. This is what he wrote to me. I didn't think it would be necessary for my wife to stay home with me. But oh, how I couldn't imagine her not being here every day with me right now. We both thank the Lord for this special time we are getting together right now. 
albeit we might prefer the bonding to be under different circumstances. But this is the vessel of my body I'm in right now. And if the Lord wanted to show the miracle at the beginning eight years ago, then I would praise him then. And if I have to go through a little more to show the power of his mercy, then so be it. I am now learning a humility, empathy, and appreciation for the needs and difficulties of others in a way I haven't had a glimpse into in all my 35 years. God is in control, and the more I understand that and let go of my own pride and ability to think I can fix things, the more freedom I feel to love others and praise Him for the blessings that have been all around me this entire process. I'm just now in the most difficult season yet, but I have been given the insight to look around take rest, and find contentment in what the Lord has been providing this whole time. I'm going to continue to take God at his word that divine healing is possible and to balance the sometimes uncomfortable juxtaposition of faith and patience. How does someone find contentment in that? A healthy young man 35 years old, serving his God and his country, and he has to be taken care of. He has to be driven around. He's been stripped of his ability to do many of the things that he's loved to do his entire life. And here he is telling us that he's finding contentment. I believe that there are three responses which I think Chase exemplifies that help us achieve contentment in all seasons of life. First, and I don't mean this as a platitude, we must look for the silver linings. It is important to look for blessings in every season and thank God for them. He mentioned that a few times. Second, we have to have a heavenly perspective. We must remember that the seasons of this world are going to pass away and that we have a promise in heaven where there will be no mourning and there will be no more tears. And finally, we need to understand that contentment is the recognition that Christ is all-sufficient. Not only in the sense that he's able to give us some of the things that we want, some of the feelings that we want to feel, like joy, peace, patience, etc., etc., but in the sense that Christ alone is all that we need. Now, as I end this morning, I want to offer a couple of notes. I did not give you many practical steps this morning to go home with regarding how to cultivate a life of, of good timing. God's timing is the best timing, and I do believe that we can actually discern his will in life, but that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> what I can just give you right now is the best way to kind of figure out God's timing in life is to be intimate with him, to read his word, know his word, and to have a counsel of brothers and sisters who are like-minded in pursuing Jesus. Also, I need to let you know that the all-sufficiency of Christ does not mean that we never mourn, cry, fight, get angry, or even tear our clothes. It means that even in the midst of our suffering, Christ is sufficient. He is even sufficient enough to overcome death. So whatever season you find yourself in this morning, allow God 
to show you that he is enough. I spoke to a woman and her husband after the first service. She's here from paradise. She lost everything. They got out with their cats and some rings on her fingers and her cars, but they're okay. And she talked about how timely this sermon was for her to be content in this season because God's working in her. I said, it's hard to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, isn't it? She's like, where else would I focus my eyes? <laughs> Put the pastor to shame right there. <laughs> I really was like, oh, oh, you're right. <laughs> the author of Ecclesiastes didn't know something that we know. He didn't know about Jesus Christ. He knew there was a promised Messiah. He didn't know what he was going to look like. He didn't know that he was going to be who Jesus was. Because if he had known who Jesus was, then he would have had his answers, the answers to his questions about life, the meaning of life. Because Paul gives us the answer to that question in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. God, this is, <laughs> it's hard because there's so much in front of us. Life can be um, so joy-filled, it can be so difficult, but it's all we know. And so we need glimpses of heaven. We need to be assured of the fact that you are enough. That doesn't mean that our relationships aren't important, that our work, that our school, that all that's not important. It just means that you are important enough and that this will all fade away and we will be with you. And all of the seasons that are difficult in life will be wiped away as we celebrate you with, with you in heaven like Guido is right now. And so, Father, as we trust you, trust that you are all-sufficient, we offer back a portion of what you've given to us, trusting that you are sufficient enough to provide for every need that we have. And I ask now that you would take these gifts as an act of worship, and that you would multiply them so that our community, our nation, and our world would know, too, that you are sufficient to provide everything that we need in this world. It's in Jesus' powerful and present name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.